guys, welcome back to the Starring Milana podcast where we try to build understanding in this crazy world one conversation at a time. This is season five, episode three. This podcast is released every Monday, hashtag Milana Monday, and it has three segments. The first is Talkworthy, where we pick a few things going on in the media and try to offer a new or different perspective. The second segment is called Dropping Gems, where we pick a topic of the week and we drop a few gems. And the third segment is called BTS. It's a recap of my past week. Um, any new finds, exciting encounters, a TV recap, and more. If you're watching on YouTube, please make sure to subscribe, leave a rating and a review. If you're listening on podcast audio apps, um, do the same thing, please. And just know there's a visual to this. Visit youtube.com forward slash starring Milana. Please follow me on Instagram at starring Milana. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about censorship in Florida, a four-day work week, crusty feet, and all things cheer season two. So let's get straight to it um talk worthy so there's three things i want to talk about this week the first thing is going to be unfortunately the senseless killings of michelle go and brianna cooper um so i'm not sure if you guys uh know about this story there's two stories and they're kind of across the coast one happened in la the other one happened in um, new york and they're both about um women who lost their lives way too soon, young women, to senseless killings. Um, Michelle Go was waiting at a subway station um, in New York City. She was waiting for a train, and she was pushed in front of a moving train, and she died. And Brianna Cooper was working at a furniture store, actually, here in Los Angeles near the Fairfax area, and somebody came in and stabbed her to death. Um, obviously, both were just unexplainable, unimaginable, um, just senseless killings of these two women. The man, Sean LaVal Smith, who uh, killed Brianna Cooper, actually had 11 prior arrests. He was caught on camera 20 minutes after killing her, buying like a vape pen at a liquor store, just calm and completely fine. Um, and I don't know, that just doesn't seem like the behavior of someone who's mentally stable. If you just murdered somebody, obviously, if you're, you know, your brain is um, operating right and you're all the way there, then you probably aren't just calm, cool and collected at a liquor store purchasing a vape pen, right? So it is strange that he was just so calm, acted like nothing happened. Um, and then the man that killed Michelle Go, um, he actually turned himself into the police and he said that he killed her because he is God. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that once they go both go through a psych evaluation, it will be clear perhaps that they both might have some sort of mental illness. And this is happening, you know, across coasts. Like, can you imagine you're just standing there starting your day waiting for a train or waiting for the bus here in L.A. or waiting for your Uber or something and someone just runs behind you and shoves you in front of a moving train, moving bus moving car and you just die right then and there I mean it's really honestly unimaginable or you're just at work on a regular work day and somebody comes in with a knife and just stabs you to death I mean it really is the saddest thing and, and, and it's you know it just made me think about how could these things have been avoided you know um, I don't know, like if she, maybe if Brianna wasn't in the store by herself, um, maybe if someone saw the homeless man running and tackled him before, there's things that could have happened, but then again, like they didn't. And I think that what's the bigger story here is like, why are these people on the streets when clearly they should probably be in some sort of 
mental institution getting the proper treatment that they need. Um, I'm not going to make an assumption and say that, you know, because I, I don't think the psych evaluations have been done. I'm not going to make an assumption and say that they are um, mentally unstable. I don't know if it drugs had anything to do with it. I don't know if it was a combination. Um, I'm not sure. But I do want to talk about, you know, the, the fact that both of these men appear to be homeless and... Um, I did do some research and there's, you know, pretty high percentage of, um, I mean, the articles vary because it's really hard to, I feel like, narrow down the number because there's so many homeless people across, you know, this country. So it's somewhere between 25% in some articles, 40% in others, 55% in others. But um, a lot of the homeless population um, has admitted to having some sort of, you know, mental illness or depression or something like that, um, which has worsened with drugs so um you know if we try to figure out how to put our focus on getting these people off the streets and into mental um some sort of mental institutions i think that you know we maybe need to revisit back um the days where we did have where we were institutionalizing um some patients against their will now you know i know that that kind of ended in uh during the reagan era and the late 1960s um when he closed down all of the the mental institutions, but, um, I'm not usually one to, you know, really push for doing anything against anyone's will, but I also don't live in a black or white world. I live in a very gray world and I think that some things are sometimes necessary. And I do think that if these people at some point, cause both had been arrested, um, previously for other things, I do think that these people, had they been properly evaluated the first time that they were arrested or the second time even that they were arrested, um, maybe, you know, we would have been able to catch that they're a little bit mentally unstable and maybe shouldn't be out in the streets because they're capable of doing something like this. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know. I think that somebody at some point, obviously, like, I'm just sitting here talking about I'm not really doing anything or contributing to this, and I just don't know where to start, but I do think that, Maybe you're trying to figure out how to get some of those tax dollars that we put it into the prison system, put it in, instead into treatment centers um, and some of these institutions, like opening them back up. And, you know, when we're putting somebody in prison for, you know, they some of these people were arrested. These I think one of these guys was arrested for biting a police officer's finger, uh, for theft, for shooting a gun at a, a parked car. I mean, some of these things on their rap sheets. So imagine doing those you know uh, psych evaluations in those moments and figuring out if there's anything you know really really wrong with these people and if so putting them in these mental institutions instead of just letting them you know sit in prison for x amount of time and then letting them go back on the streets and it costs lives right so um yeah that was what I thought about when I read both of these stories really unfortunate and um you know I i I really hope that these families get the justice that they need and also um, just the peace that they need. The next story that I want to talk about is something that we've talked about on this podcast several times. I don't understand what the hell is going on in Florida. What? Why is there always something happening in Florida that's just absurd, crazy? I mean, these headlines... <sighs> um. And also, Ron DeSantis is like a sad human being. I don't know how he was elected, but he is just really doing some fucking damage that's going to affect a lot of people and really just 
stopping the progress, stopping growth, stopping conversations. He the he is, I think, on the forefront of the censorship that's going to take place in Florida, beginning with children and uh kids and teenagers in the school districts and then I think it's going to eventually take over just Florida in general. So in the newest Florida fuckery, um the government is getting into the business of the school district. Not only did they ban critical race theory from schools last year, um but last week the House committee passed the Don't Say Gay Act which seeks to uh ban discussions of sexuality and gender ide- identity in the state schools. And in the same week. Like, first of all, that headline is crazy. You're like, what the fuck is going on? But in that same week, they proposed a bill called the Individual Freedom Bill, which sounds good, but it's not. Um, And it states, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex does not bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. An individual should not be made to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on accounts of his, his or her race. Basically, you can't make white people feel guilty for America's racism. That's what the bill is for. And I, I, (laughs) um, it's basically intending to keep white people from feeling uncomfortable from having these conversations about race. Um, you know, we have to have uncomfortable conversations to grow. And I think that that's what was happening in America the past two years. And now Florida has had enough, clearly, and they're saying that, We don't want to hear it anymore. We don't want our white people uh, feeling uncomfortable or guilty for the acts of our, you know, ancestors. Um, This is silly. First of all, I think it's going to lead to a bunch of lawsuits. You know, it's like if someone at school, if a teacher mentions something like this, then the student is allowed to go home, tell their parents, and then you know these petty parents are going to go in and start suing the school the school district or the school. So I think it's going to result into a bunch of petty lawsuits. Um, you know, and I also think that some people don't see a problem with it. I read a lot of comments where people were like, good, keep like sexuality out of schools, or good, let's keep, you know, the the debate about race um in america out of schools and let's just focus on learning but first of all this is all a part of our history and um i don't know i think that when you're learning about what is like not considered normal by societal standards or the status quo you are promoting tolerance and you're building understanding without having these conversations um you're kind of you know ignoring the realities of many people in this world and you're just trying to promote ignorance and division it's kind of um sad uh, that they're trying to alienate people and limit their ability to not only like receive the proper education about such topics but now their conversations about you know now we're stopping conversations and this is their free speech like we're talking about we're really imposing on people's free speech and I know that the school district can make up their own curricula and it's public school system and the state um you know can oversee what's going on in the schools but we're really talking about free speech here it's not the school district this is also affecting employees and employers and how they train their um employees and how they decide to tell them what's what's acceptable conversation in the workplace what's not acceptable conversation in the workplace now you're really limiting somebody's free speech and their right to understand the person next to them their right to understand you know um their colleagues their fellow students it's really just censorship is the best way that um i can put it 
The weirdest thing to me and the funniest thing to me about this whole thing is Republicans are always talking about how liberals are sensitive and how they're easily triggered. But this is a Republican government putting these, trying to pass these bills. And it's like, you are talking about liberals being triggered and sensitive, but you can't have conversations about America's racist past without feeling, you know, thinking that people are going to be guilty, feel guilty and shame. And oh my God, God forbid somebody feels guilty about slavery. Like face the fucking facts. This country had slaves. This country was built on the backs of slaves and it was racist. And to some degree, it still is a racist country. I don't think these conversations that we're meant to have, I suppose, are putting blame on the current white people or the current citizens of America. You know, we're just trying to make sure that history is also put, is learned and and explained and taught through that lens, through the lens of critical race theory, which now Florida has also banned. If you're conflicted, I'm going to leave you with this quote from MSNBC's Jahan Jones. He says, it is clearly prioritizing white hypersensitivity over truthful teachings and saying lessons about America's racist and sexist past are acceptable only if they don't offend white people. So keep that in mind if you are um, conflicted about this topic. I want to start off the next topic with a question. Do you think we as a society will benefit or suffer from a four-day work week? Um, I saw a headline that said the UK is trialing a four-day work week and I screamed like, fuck yes. Because I've been talking about this for a very long time. I don't think that in this country we have balance. Maybe it's not just this country. I think that it's a lot of countries have this problem as well. But, you know, I think about like in Italy when they go home and they have two-hour lunch breaks, they have eat, they take a nap, they spend time with their family. It's just not as intense everyone's lifestyle is not as stressful and intense as you know that of the people living in america so i'm really excited um that they are trialing this and it's going to be 30 companies actually in the uk that are participating in a six-month trial um I think that with more downtime, people actually will be more productive in their shorter weeks. Like, I do believe that people will be happier. I think that they'll be less um, stressed out. And I think that if you have employees who are satisfied with their work-life balance, then that would lead them to actually be more productive. And I also think that it will lead to company commitment. And what I mean by that is if I'm somebody who's working at a company and this company is offering me a four-day work week and I'm like, huh. I get to be at work four days a week and, you know, enjoy my time three days a week. Um, and then you have this other company who I'm also interviewing for and they don't offer that. Then I'm more likely to not only go and work with this company, but stay with this company because now I'm happy, um, I'm more productive and I, you know, I'm more committed to getting my work done and working at this company because they do offer this perk. Um and so, yeah, so that those are my thoughts about the four-day work week. Um, so here's a little bit more about what they're doing in the UK. According to Fortune.com, the company's testing the four-day work week will reduce their employees' work times to 32 hours a week for six months and measure any changes to productivity and employee well-being. The 30 companies taking part will have between 20 and 200 employees and will begin cutting hours in June 2022. The employees of companies participating in the trial will, will be given their full wage and employee benefits for 80% of their time while committing to maintain 100% productivity. So 
let's really break this down. Currently, most people work 40 hours a week, right? So we wake up. If we get a workout in, we're lucky enough. Um, then we go to work. Wait, sit in traffic first, depending where you live. Then you get to work. You come home. You make yourself some food. You shower and you sleep. Not to mention kids. Like if you don't have kids, that's, you know, a, a regular day. If you have kids, then it gets like a little more obviously chaotic, right? Um, and this... This idea of a 40-hour work week, five days a week was implemented so long ago. I think that, you know, it probably became the norm when there was um, one person at home and one person out working and the person that's at home is able to make the meals, is able to clean, is able to care for the kids. So the other person wasn't as burnt out or stressed out and kind of enjoy their life a little bit more although they were at work five days a week now most households have two working adults and when you put kids into into the mix then you have to figure out do you deal with the kids schedule you deal with cleaning you deal with cooking you both have to deal with this you get burnt out so I think that a four-day work week will give people a little bit more um life back you know and I also think it could be really good for the economy because now you're out an extra day and you're spending more money maybe you're shopping more and it kind of just gets the economy going um I don't know if this will you know necessarily work in the U.S. because now I'm wondering like what if people are like no companies are like no you still have to work, work 40 hours a week but now you have to do 10 hours a day you know it's like I thought about myself if I was given that option would I rather work five days eight hours or four days ten hours like I'll probably do like four days nine hours max but um I would probably do that just to get up and drive and go to work on you know an extra day where I can just stay in the office a couple of hours more every day it sounds a little bit more of an easier um process for me so um, I kept researching to see if this four-day work week has been done anywhere else. There was a study done in Japan. According to cityam.com, the best long-term example so far is Microsoft Japan. In August 2019, the company implemented a four-day work week, giving their 2,300 employees five Fridays off in a row, and those results were a success. Productivity jumped 40%, meetings were more efficient, and workers who were also happier took a lot less time off. Also, the company saw a 59% increase in the numbers of pages printed by employees, which were also welcomed by employers. See? Good for employees and good for Mother Earth. So I'm definitely down for this four-day work week. You guys DM me. Let me know your thoughts. I also want to hear from people who own companies. Um, I want to know what your thoughts on because I feel like maybe the company owners, um, supervisors, maybe they feel a little bit different about a four-day work week because now, you know, they have to pay for the same amount of hours, but the people work less hours. So I do want to hear about you guys who own your own companies. Please DM me and let me know your thoughts on this four-day work week. Okay, we're going to head into the Dropping Gems segment. And in this week's Dropping Gems segment, I want to talk about all things cheer season two. Now, I know I usually do this in the TV recap segment, but um, it's just it was just too much going on and I was too into it for me to just you know, give you guys a quick recap. Um, I just want to drop a few gems on some of the conclusions about the season that I came to and also some of the public's critiques. Um, if you haven't watched it already, there's spoiler alerts. So I would say pause this podcast, watch the season two, binge it, and then come back 
and listen to my thoughts. Um, Let's talk about the overall filmmaking first. I think that the cinematography was great. I think that they had great angles, overhead angles. Um, I think they had drones. They really captured like, maybe they even had cranes. I don't know how they filmed it. But they really were able to get great angles um, of the stunts, the girls in the air, the tumbling, um, the routines. And I also think the producers did a really good job of the interviews. So when when they were interviewing these these um, cheerleaders one by one or the coaches one on one, I think they're asking all the right questions. I think they really capture the emotions of all of the um, personalities very very well. But I didn't think this might not be a popular opinion. I do think that it was maybe two episodes too long. Um, I think that maybe seven episodes would have been sufficient. Um, there was a lot of repetitiveness they 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 talked about um you know how overwhelming the fame was and they talked about how nervous they were for Daytona a little too much I think that they might have even like repeated some of the scenes and some parts were really slow I do think that they should have probably just cut it down to about seven episodes that would have definitely been enough um now I want to talk about Trinity Valley Cheers so in season one, we got a glimpse of this cheer team, their rival from down the road. And, um, you know, we we kind of view them as the underdog um, after the, the competition the season ended, right? Um, but we got to know them a little bit better this season, which I'm really happy about. I think that they're super talented. Monte and Chris, the two coaches, are... So interesting. I love their dynamic. I love their different coaching styles. I think that they really balance each other out. It's really like fascinating to me to watch two straight males um, in the coaching world, you know, coaching these this cheer team specifically and doing such a good job. Um, and speaking of straight males and cheer, we got to know the TVCC cheer team better and I found it um shocking I didn't realize that a lot of most of their actually males on their cheer team were straight as opposed to Navarro's who were um I think if not all but most uh gay and you know I think that people think that cheerleading is a sport for women or for gay men um and therefore they just kind of brush it off as easy not important and sometimes don't even consider cheerleading to be a sport but when you have these straight men enter the sport it may shift the way that people really view it um and approach cheerleading just as a sport in general or as a culture um so tbcc okay this team the weenies the three guys the weenies that they call them i'm so impressed with them um i am also really really impressed with the gym that they all came from the local tumbling gym in their neighborhood that really started to get kids off the streets they just like told kids to come there after school and learn how to tumble um and it really produced amazing tumblers including like angel rice and some of these guys that are part of this group called the weenies at um tvcc i think the gym was called flip city south i'm gonna do more research on them um now angel rice i don't think we got enough of her she is so talented i started googling other tumbling videos of hers i think that she set a guinness world record in 2015 for the most double folds in one minute i think she did about 10 um really really impressed with her and i hope that if they bring this back for season three that we get to know her a little bit better and jada wooten you know she 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 came off as having like really tough skin 
which she does. Um, but she, towards the end, you just really wanted more, wanted to know more about her. She was so motivational. She had this like, um, nurturing side of her and she was so super talented and she worked so hard. So, um, I'm really, I really love getting to know the TVCC. I want to thank them for really highlighting this showmanship part of cheerleading because not only in cheer, but in dance as well. The judges are judging you obviously on everything, right? Like your skills, your tumbling, your dancing, everything across the board. What, you know, we don't really think about a lot of the time is your facial expressions, the showmanship points, right? Um, you have to look like you are having a good time. You have to make it look easy and it has to be enjoyable. That's why they're always screaming, smile, smile, like blow a kiss, do, do this, do that. That's why coaches are really adamant about your facial expression because if you're, you have a team full of people who are really, really talented and they're, they're hitting all their stunts and they're doing all their tumbles, but they look like they don't care on their face or they look like stressed or they look nervous or they just don't have the face of someone who's enjoying the performance and then it becomes not enjoyable to watch and they will dock points for that. Um, so it was really fun to watch um, Vonte and, you know, D really battle about him not wanting to smile. He's like, that's not my thing. Um, you know, I'm just here to, to tumble. I'm not going to smile and make these facial expressions. Like you have to, you have to, you have to. But um, I can really, really uh, relate to this. When I used to dance and we had dance competitions, even when I cheered, you know, we really, I was dead center in the front. I was shorter than everyone else. And um, I choreographed a lot of the stuff. I was a captain. So I was usually dead center in the front or I split the middle in the front with someone who's, you know, similar size to me. And eyes were always going to the center, right? Most people's eyes kind of go to the center. So the smiling, the making the faces, all of that stuff, I really had to perfect because that's where everyone's eyes went. I remember, you know, dance competitions and I remember judges writing notes and saying, oh, you know, love the facial expressions of the girl in the front, love this, love that. And I had to constantly remember not only the routine, not only what the next thing was going to be, not only like you know, hoping I land the, that, that stunt, um, but also my face. Um, and I actually had a dance coach who used to put a pencil in our mouths and all of our mouths. We all had like a pencil and we're forced to keep our mouth open because the pencil, you know, and it's obviously not, it's a, it's a cringy face. It's not the face that you want to make while you're, um, performing, but she would do that so that we learned how to keep our mouth open and smiling while we're performing so she used to make us rehearse with these pencils in our mouth so um watching d really struggle with that was just so interesting to me because i could totally um understand and relate to just the agony of having to have this face on all the time the next thing i want to talk about is this concept of fame that we it was a it was a running theme in cheer Next thing I want to talk about was the concept of fame. It was a running theme in this season. Um, you know, just people are so funny because everybody loved Navarro so much when season one came out. Then they got a little too famous for the world, like overexposure, I guess, if you want to call it. And then people just started wanting to see them 
fail. They wanted to see them lose. Um, it, it, it's a fascinating topic. The, the theme to me really of the first few episodes was just the transformational nature of fame and how you can go from being, you know, loved and how quickly you go from being loved to hated. I think a lot of people were just saying it was overexposure. We saw too much of them. Um, and I think that the payoff comes with its own set of problems. And that's one thing that I really took from this season of Cheer. They were really heavily criticized for taking on too many interviews, too many appearances, um, too many sponsors. And Monica was um, really, really criticized, not only by some of her own cheerleaders and um, by other people that were interviewed on the season, but by the public for deciding to participate in Dancing with the Stars. Now, people were saying that her job is to be a coach. Her job is to not abandon her team. Um, but let's Look, if we're looking at a black and white world, which I think most people live in, but again, let's move into the gray, right? In a black or white world, if you ask somebody this question, should a coach coach their cheerleaders, prep them for the championship, or do a take a personal experience, um, choose herself, and have this personal experience of being on Dancing with the Stars, a lot of people would say, no, do your job, you're a coach, right? But... Let's look at all of the details. First of all, she left in the, like over the summer going into season, um, season semester one, not when, and Daytona is in spring semester two. It was a couple of weeks. It wasn't that long. I think that when the opportunity comes, when the phone rings, you pick it up and you go because it might not never come again and you don't want to sit there and live with regret. It's not like it was her first season, second season. She'd been at the school and coached these kids for over 20 years and they've won 14 championships. So it's not crazy to me that she would take some time and do this thing for herself, especially since Dancing with the Stars is her dream. It's her Thing. She loves the show. She's always wanted to be on it. And now she got the opportunity to be on it. And people uh, just couldn't understand how she would take that opportunity versus going back to coaching. It's not like she left them forever. She took X amount of weeks off to do Dancing with the Stars. She had a replacement coach who was really good. And she left and she came back. So, um, and it was during COVID. So it's like, this was the only time that I feel like maybe they weren't practicing as hard as they should have, or maybe they had a lot of restrictions with when practice could, you know, dates and times can be, I don't know. But I think that, you know, the opportunity called and she took it. And I, I think that if the opportunity presented itself to TVCC, they would have done the same thing, whether it was Vante, whether it was some of these cheerleaders, if they got a bunch of calls for appearances, if they got a bunch of calls to be on Ellen and all these things, they would have also done it. If they would have had these opportunities, I do believe that they also would have taken them. That's just my personal thought. The only critique I really have is that, you know, you're put you're given this platform and when you decide to put your life out there, when you decide to let cameras into, you know, your house, into your job, into these kids' lives and it takes off. Yes, there's going to be a lot of, you know, great and positive, but then now there's a lens, right? Now there, now people have eyes on you. There's also a lot of negativity that comes with fame, but we know that. So I wish that, you know, instead of 
talking a lot about how overwhelming it is and how people are so mean and how hateful some of these people are and the comments on social media. I I would have taken it. I would have I would have liked to see them say, "You know what? This is the price that we paid for um welcoming cameras into our gym, into our homes, um for really giving people a glimpse of what we do, but like going deep and and um then overexposing ourselves to an, to a degree in you know the media in this world and yes you're gonna get some hate back and I think that I would have liked them to to say you know what the good comes with the bad and although it's really unfortunate to see people be so cruel sometimes on social media um online uh, you know the, the critics it is what it is and we have to deal with it I I would have liked to see that approach versus the woe is me which I think that we kind of got from a lot of these uh, one-on-one interviews. It was a lot of woe is me. I think there was also a lot of criticism, obviously, on the cheerleaders themselves, um, mainly the, you know, the main ones that were um, presented to us in season one, saying that they are not focusing on their cheer careers. They're just focusing on these appearances and stuff. And I think that this really sparks a conversation for me of what is the responsibility of an institution to its athlete to its athletes? Do you allow these athletes to take other opportunities? Do you, you know, like Trinity Valley, they said, hey, you're only you're coming to cheer. You're only coming to cheer here. You're not allowed to cheer on all-star teams. That's it. Like this is all you could do is this cheer team and go to school. Navarro doesn't have that. Navarro's like, you know what? You can cheer somewhere else if you want on all-star teams. But, you know, this is a school that you cheer for. And, oh, there's an interview. Yes, you can take it. Oh, there's a commercial. Yes, you can take it, right? What is the responsibility of an institution to its athletes? And this argument has been going around forever. We talk about this all the time. You know, we see these conversations about these college D1 athletes and how the universities are making money off of them, their jerseys, the tickets to the games, but these athletes make nothing. And a lot of them are, you know, living really poorly. You know, they have the scholarships, but those scholarships only cover their education or maybe just their living expenses. And they're just really struggling while they're there. And they're not taking any of those opportunities. And the conversation has been going on for years of what should they do? Should they be able to, you know, uh, profit from the the recognition that the school is receiving be- on their backs, basically. So um, I personally think they should because you think about the career of a cheerleader at this junior college in Texas. Once they leave here, some, sure, can go cheer at a four-year university. You know, they have two years there and they're done. But your a lot of these people's cheer career ends here at this JC. The professional, professional cheerleaders. We're talking about what the Calgar- the Cowboys cheerleaders. We're talking about the Laker girls. These are not people who are stunting and really focusing on the athleticism of cheerleading. They're more like dancers. So really, a cheerleader's career can end after this experience at this junior college. So why wouldn't they take all of the um, experiences all of the opportunities that they can while they're there because it's never going to come again the next thing I want to talk about is the Jerry Harris of it all on season one everyone fell in love with Jerry Harris um we received the unfortunate news that he you know about these sexual assault allegations um and now in episode five we got to see the victims um they're minors I was kind of shocked that 
they, because I didn't follow the story when it was in the news, but I was kind of shocked to see their faces. I, I was really surprised that as minors, their parents would allow them to, you know, come out and uh, with these allegations, but not come out anonymously. Um, I was a little bit conflicted about that, but I think their mother really explained and it said, you know, we have nothing to hide. Why should we hide? I think that when you get to see the victim's face, you really uh, can understand and it hits you harder and you have more empathy and um, you really want justice to be served versus just hearing, oh, anonymous, you know, twin A, anonymous twin B. You don't really have that connection with the crime um, and the person because you don't have a face to the victim. So I understand um, her point of view. I think that it is important that uh, the cheer directors and producers put these these two boys and their story um, in an episode and really covered it because in cheer where there's a lot of sexual harassment, sexual assault that happens because of the age gaps that um, are on some of these teams. When you're on an all-star team, you can have a, you know, a 10-year-old with a 30-year-old because there's no, there's really no regulation, um, in, in that way in Cheers. So I'm glad that we got to see it. I think that we watch Monica and Gabby Butler really have a hard time with, um, everything that Jerry Harris, uh, did. And people were, really criticizing Gabby for saying that she was going to stand by Jerry um, because he, at the end of the day, was like a family member to her. Um, and really also Monica and her, her, you know, response where she was like, I'm just so hurt that, the, that, you know, like one of my kids did this. I love Jerry, whatever, whatever. Now, I don't understand where this is coming from. We have to really look at it from their perspective. We're talking about two people who were like re almost family to the point where they just were almost like related to this person. And this person does a horrible, horrible thing, but it's like your family member. So not they're not saying he's not guilty and they're not saying that what he did was, wasn't wrong. All they're saying is, you know, like this is, this is horrible, but he's still like a family member to me. So I'm going to, you know, be there for him. Really, that's it. It's just be there for him. Because what else can you do? If this is your sibling, if this is your child that 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 committed these crimes, would you just abandon them? Like, no, you, you would tell them you're guilty. I can't believe you do this. You're upset. You whatever. But you still are there for them because it's a family member. So I'm just, that's the understanding place that I'm coming from is they know what he did was wrong. Monica, no, she hasn't even responded to the letter that he sent. She's just like, ugh, like he was like a child to me because that is the relationship that they had. So she can also, in the same, she, we can live in, a, in, a, in, in the same space of feeling bad for these victims, wanting justice for them, but also being there for the person that committed these crimes because they're kind of like your family member. I think you can, ex that, that you can live in both of, you can live in a world where those two things exist. Okay, let's the last thing I'm gonna talk about is the actual competition and the championship. Um it seemed like to me everybody wanted Navarro to lose, which is weird because everyone wanted them to win last time and we're so happy when they won. It just the energy of the 
you know, the documentary and even like the judges. It seemed like even the judges kind of wanted them to lose. Why? I don't know. The score that Trinity Valley received for their prelim performance seemed a little high to me uh, because they, one of the stunts didn't go up and, and, and a tumble, you know, didn't land. So to me, I'm like, wait a minute, shouldn't their score have been a little bit less? I felt like it should have been less. It seemed like you know, I don't know, but I, I'm not judging. So I have no idea. I had no dog in the fight for me. It didn't really matter who won. Um, obviously like a lot of people were supporting in Trinity Valley because they're the underdog, but like, I don't even think they call themselves that. And are they really, it's a, what, in what sense are they the underdog? Is it because they, you know, weren't able to purchase that stage and have a fancier stage and, you know, practice outside. Like they didn't fly to the competition. They, you know, drove, is that why they're the underdog? Because if I'm looking at them, like, yeah, maybe they haven't won in the last two years, but they've won 11 championships and Navarro has won 14. It's not like they've never won. And I don't even think that Trinity Valley looks at themselves as the underdog. I don't know. Um, and although I did favor Navarro to win coming in from, you know, last season because we're like, oh, well, we know them, we like them. As the season went on, I really started to like the Trinity Valley kids as well. So I really didn't have a horse in the race. Um, it didn't matter to me who won. I just felt like if you deserved it, then you know you should definitely win it. A winning streak never really bothers me and neither does a good upset. So I didn't care at all. But uh, when Trinity Valley won first place, I kind of felt a little uneasy because they weren't very nice after a while. Like their chants and their cheers were like, fuck the judges, fuck Navarro. Um, like fuck everybody and when they did it had a good performance they're like let's go we're gonna psych them out let's go sit on stage it just wasn't very like there was no sportsmanship almost um, it wasn't like nice it didn't come off as very nice they don't have to be but it just wasn't it didn't leave like the best taste in my mouth when they won I'm like okay well they won and they're like being so cruel about it and they were so mean about their performance it was just weird because I never heard Navarro come at you know another team like that or the judges like that so just wasn't very gracious to me. Um, a little hostile, actually, is, is, is I think what it is. Now, I also um, watched, obviously, both performances on the docuseries. But it, it, it didn't show me the routines from one camera angle down the center. We just saw clips of, like, you know, the people flying, people tumbling. There was, like, a, diff a bunch of different angles. That's not the best way to watch a routine and to judge a routine. So when I went on YouTube and I searched both of the routines and I watched them from the center camera. And I have to tell you, Navarro's actual routine, like the uh, and their actual performance, I thought was better. I thought that their 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 dancing was better, their facial expressions were better, their their the beat was like the 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 upbeatness of their routine was better. It was faster. It was more entertaining to watch the actual routine. But they did not hit one of the most important stunts so obviously that's why they lost and I do think in that case Trinity Valley did deserve to win because they hit everything but the routine itself for Navarro was better and I do think that had Jill not you know fell on that stunt that they definitely would have won um that is my overall recap of cheer season two I am you know happy that it came out it's one of my favorite shows and I hope that they get approved for season three and now I just feel like there's a little more of like an even playing field with the two now Navarro has to try a little harder and Trinity Valley has to kind of keep this energy going this winning streak going for them so I'm excited to watch 
the next season. Um, and yeah, let's go into the last segment. It's called BTS. You guys, we finally are able to get free COVID tests. Um, it's on the USPS website. This should have been done forever ago, but whatever it's done now, uh, please sign up for a free test. They'll set you on at home kids. If you're feeling slightly sick, use it, um, test yourself. Don't go out, get other people sick. I feel like if we would have had this, you know, a year ago, we could have avoided a lot of, a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, a lot of people could have, you know, not gotten sick because, you know, some people are asymptomatic or they had a little cough or whatever, and they still went on about their day. But now please check yourself if you're feeling slightly sick um, so that you can avoid getting other people sick. I will put the link to where you can sign up for those tests in my bio. Next thing I want to talk about, guys, is this week I was eating an orange. And I haven't eaten orange in years. I just realized because when I put the orange in front of me, I didn't know how to eat it. Like I I just kind of, I just kind of stopped in my tracks. I was like, wait, how do you eat this orange? It's been years and I'm like oh well you eat it how you eat a mandarin you just peel it with your fingers mandarins are so small it's like easy and quick to do so I'm like yeah well, that's how you eat an orange I stuck my nail and it was so hard to get my nail in there to like peel it but then all of the it started squirting everywhere the juices everything was under my nail and it was just such a weird way to eat it and then two days later I was watching my mom eat the orange and she just like cut it into wedges and gracefully ate it and I'm like what the fuck I have, I don't eat, know how to eat an orange because I haven't eaten an orange in years. Um, and it was just a very, I wish there was a camera watching me do this because it was a really funny fucking moment. What else is there? Okay, the last thing before I get into TV recap, I want to talk about um, crusty feet. So I get my pedicure and my, my nails done every two to three weeks. And I get like the full feet pedicure treatment um and I every time I leave the next day my heels are like dry my skin is like peeling um it's white it's like kind of like crusty and I'm like what the fuck is going on every time I'm like what's wrong with my feet I'm like do I have some problem with my feet so I start like googling athlete's foot and like honestly like it's a really scary place to be don't fucking google athlete's foot it's really creepy but I start googling all these things I'm like what is wrong with my feet, why do they look like this? And I'm like, is it from the pedicure? No, it can't be. So I kind of like brushed it off and I'm like, all right, I'm not going to think about it, whatever. I have other things to do. I'll get every time. Maybe if I get a pedicure next time, it'll be different. This is how I'm thinking. I'm getting my hair done. And my hair girl randomly starts talking about how her feet are just super dry and she keeps getting pedicures and it's still like this. I'm like, oh my God, I thought it was crazy. So I started Googling and there's a lot of women across the world who are having the same issue and apparently it's due to over exfoliation of your feet during these pedicures um according to newbeauty.com too much exfoliation can remove the protective barriers on your skin and actually cause more callus buildup other signs of over exfoliation include burning blistering pain infection and think crusty skin on the heels I recommend just going for a polish change if you want a refresh look within two weeks. Um, yeah, and then there was another thing here. It says, when the natural skin barrier is reduced, um, this creates something called contact irritant dermatitis. 
Contact Irritant Dermatitis red, irritated, tender skin that is more sensitive and more easily infected without an intact barrier. If this has happened to you before or you're not willing to risk it, take Dr. Longwell's advice of opting for the polish change instead or wait a bit longer in between appointments. I recommend pedicures be done no more than once every four to six weeks. Wow, okay, so... Maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I just need to do. The problem with getting a polish change is though, I get gel on my toes, on my feet. I get like a gel pedicure. So I can't just do a polish change. They're going to do the acetone. They're going to remove it. Then they have to do more. I have to put like, you know, more polish. And now I'm just like, if I'm have if I have gel removed and on my feet, I feel like I need to get a full pedicure. So maybe I'll just try to prolong the time. Maybe I'll just go between every three, like almost four weeks. But yeah, the overexfoliation is definitely a thing if anybody was wondering what's going on with their feet because I clearly had a problem. Um, all right, so TV recap, euphoria. You guys, I you guys are catching this on Monday, so I haven't seen the new yesterday's episode, but the one last week with all of the fantasies and like Cassie, you know, falling in love with Nate, maybe being pregnant and Maddie and all of that shit and I just thought it was one of the best episodes I've seen on TV in a very long time. There was a lot going on. It was really kind of like crazy um, and the buildup was crazy, but it was interesting to see different hypothetical situations between uh, for all of the, the girls and all of the characters. Um, this show is just so dark and twisted and it's kind of like I'm trying to imagine having a, a, a kid and they're in high school and they're watching this show and I don't know what kind of influence does it have because it's like kind of dark like when we were in high school we were watching the OC we were watching like Gossip Girl and like although it definitely had it's like darker moments it wasn't as um out there as the show is like the drugs weren't so obvious like yeah there was like some drinking stuff and maybe there was like a teenage pregnancy here and there but it wasn't like this dark and this crazy these kids are living like really wild lives so I don't know I, I love the show um but definitely dark what else what else did I watch Salt Lake City Housewives uh the blow up between Jen Shaw and Meredith was really painful to watch I think that Jen is just a little too much in everyone's face. Um, and I don't know why everyone is so confused and they keep asking the same question. Why is Meredith not friends with Jen? I think she's, and like, she's not telling us. No, no, she said it a million times. She said that Jen not only insulted her son, but she also made really crazy accusations, remarks, put out her personal business last season, especially about, you know, Meredith and her husband's open marriage or any affairs or anything like that Jen really put her business out there and it just really painted Meredith and her marriage in like a negative light so I don't know why everyone's confused as to why Meredith doesn't want to be friends with Jen I think it's pretty obvious um and Mary is really difficult to break through she's just not trying to have these conversations with um Whitney I don't know what their issue is it's a little much um but yeah it's really it's really uncomfortable to watch their their interactions because it's like it's rude and it's kind of mean but it never really goes anywhere and they can't fucking solve anything and now that Mary apparently didn't you know go to the reunion it means like she's probably not going to return to um the next season so we don't really get a lot of those answers but that's kind of where I'm at with the 
Salt Lake City. Okay, so OC, nothing happened, like much happened in this episode, but I just want to talk about Noella really quickly. I think she's stunning. I love her fashion. Um, I feel I have empathy for her, what she's going through with her husband and this divorce and how he cut her off. But this is this bone she has with Heather. I need her to get to the point. I need to understand what is this bone she has with her because it's very unclear. It just seems like to me she doesn't like her because Heather comes off as you know too snooty or too whatever that's like kind of what she's saying but she's now she keeps talking about she can't be trusted and she's um fake and she's two-faced she's saying these things about heather but we don't know why i need her to get to the why because if she's not going to get to the why what she she noelle actually looks like the one that's delusional and um ungrateful you know coming to this trip making comments about the house making comments about the tequila like she's just being very rude and it just comes off as she's the one that's wrong because we don't know what her beef is she hasn't really voiced her beef with heather yet and i just need to get to that point um but the mid-season trailer looks really good and i'm excited for the rest of the season because you guys know oc has been awful the past few years so this is looking like a really good season the last thing I want to talk about is Vanderpump Rules. I know that I haven't really talked about um, the show this, this you know, the past few episodes, but I have been watching it. It's been a little bit hard to watch, a little bit cringy. You know, we don't have some of the old castmates, so we're stuck with like Sheena and Brock and, you know, James, Raquel, and thank God Lala's still here because could we handle Tam Tom Sandoval on our own? I don't think so. It's honestly really, really hard to watch the show. But the last couple of episodes, it got good because obviously we have Sheena and her lack of... Uh, I guess reading the room and understanding the situation like just living in her own reality I guess her and Brock and the fact that they thought that it might be a good idea to have a surprise pop-up wedding at someone else's engagement party is really just absurd to me it's you're trying to take someone's shine and someone's moment and I can't really get with that they're like trying to steal someone's thunder and the fact that Lala was supposed to, they didn't do it, thank God. Lala was supposed to keep this information to herself, but she went and blasted it. A lot of people don't like Lala. They're like, oh, you're not a real friend or you're trying to ruin James' moment. But honestly, had Lala not done this, there wouldn't have been any drama created and it would have been a snooze fest. So I'm happy that she did this and I just am ready to get to the reunion and, you know, figure out what's going to happen next season because Raquel and James are getting not going to get married. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with Vanderpump Rules. Um, and I realized by recapping Vanderpump Rules just now that Southern Charm has not been on in a very long time. And there, I have not seen a trailer. There's no, you know, dates of when it's going to be out. I don't know if that has to do with COVID or if they just can't, or if they're having casting issues or what is happening there. But it seems like it's been a long time since um, Southern Charm has been on. So I'd love to get an update on that. That is all I have for this week's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I will be back next week. In the meantime, if you're bored, catch up on all the episodes. Um, watch the video to this. Subscribe. Leave a rating and review. Hit me up on uh, social media. And as a reminder, we're going to start the Atomic Habits book next. That's going to be the book of the i guess month if we hopefully can finish in a month but that's going to be our next book club read is atomic habits by james clear so please dm me on instagram if you're interested in reading and i will add you to the digital book club thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful week